Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today's show is going to be basically a companion episode to the latest Thinking Basketball video on YouTube, which is about how stars uh, influence each other, especially statistically. And if, if it's your first time on the podcast, welcome. Uh, we're going we're to dive deeper into this topic today. It's, it's a topic that's been near and dear to my heart for years, and it's about how players uh, interact with each other and how that says about what that says about our perfe- uh, perception of them and things like that. So we will talk about Michael Jordan. We'll talk about LeBron James. We'll get into Shaq and Kobe. Uh, we'll circle back to the Durant Warriors with Steph Curry. Now remember, Curry played with Durant. Durant played with Westbrook, as I discuss in the video. We'll talk a little bit more about what happens with Westbrook. Both Westbrook and Durant played with Harden. Uh, Chris Paul played with Harden. So there's all sorts of uh, rabbit holes that this will take us down that we'll explore in today's episode. And then I want to finish with what I think is the ultimate example of this kind of heavy load, high usage player combining in a certain way or multiple players combining in a certain way to redistribute value when a player goes in and out of the lineup. We'll talk about that team. It's a it's a core concept that I lead with in thinking basketball, the book, but you don't replace scoring when it goes out of the lineup. You redistribute it. You don't replace playmaking. You often redistribute it. That's this point about how off-ball players are kind of doing something unique in this in this metaphor, the way we think about this, because they're providing value without the ball, and four guys can do that at any given time. There's only one ball where you can extract on-ball value. So we will get into that later. But to start with, a few weeks ago, I sent out a tweet as I was kind of finalizing this research. And the tweet goes like this. It says, imagine a player who gets traded midseason. He produces two different stat lines. There's no trickery here. All, all other stats are the same. And we assume his defensive play is identical before the trade and after the trade. So before the trade, he averages 25 points per game. His true shooting percentage is 10% better than the league, and his box plus minus is plus four. That's using my model. Uh, The basketball reference numbers will be even more spaced out. So if you're really familiar with that, make it an even bigger difference than this. Because after the trade, his box plus minus goes down to plus two. Uh, His true shooting percentage is only three percentage points better than the league, and he averages 27 points per game. So 25 plus 10 versus 27 plus three. We assume his passing and everything else is the same across the board. And the suspicion here, the, the, the trap, as I talked about in one of the first episodes of this podcast, the tyranny of the quantifiable, is that we look at that readily available data and we make really big conclusions. So the winner of the poll, I ask what, what kind of conclusions can we make about these players 
before and after the trade. And the winner of the poll was to say that he was better before the trade. That's what we can conclude. If everything else is the same and his scoring looks better, and we have some top-line indicator that also suggests he was you know, much better or clearly better, depending on how you want to look at that. There's a pretty big difference in my model between a plus two BPM and a plus four. We should say he's better, right? And in fact, 54% of the people who answered it said we can conclude he was better before the trade. 4% said he was better after the trade. That's an interesting conclusion. I don't think we can conclude he was better after the trade. Because if everything else is the same and his scoring goes down and his overall numbers go down, even if we inferred that he was in a situation that needed more heavy lifting, what would make these changes in performance, what would make the second one better than the first one? And that, that's actually what I think is definitively the answer. Uh, and 42% of people landed on that, which is it depends. It, de- it can depend on many things, but it depends because, and here's the whole point of the setup, This is based on a real player. This is based on a real situation. These numbers are pulled from Amari Stoudemire playing with and without Steve Nash. And in fact, as I've discussed before, when Amari finally went to New York and didn't have Nash next to him as another high load, heavy lifter, prolific playmaker, and in his case, with an interaction based on his scoring, right? Phoenix, Nash was the tip of the spear, and Amari was the one benefiting from, benefiting from him knifing through the defense, carving them up, and setting him up for high-value shots. When you take that degree of playmaking away from a finisher like Stoudemire, what does it do to his stats? So it was a pretty consistent stat change into New York. But it's based on Amari Stoudemire, the actual player, playing with and without Steve Nash. So I think that begs the question, and it's a weird one, is Amari Stoudemire a better player during the minutes Nash is on the bench within the same games that he's playing? And to me, the answer is no. That's like a definitive no. He may be more valuable, right? There may be an interaction effect where Nash helps him and he's more valuable next to Nash. That may be true. I think all of that uh, is important to consider. But it's also important to consider the difference between kind of goodness and a, and a player's skills and the idea that the situation that you deploy them in is going to create different value because of these constant latent skills. They're, they're packaged. They're, they're overall quality as a player, if you will. And I don't see how that changes from minute to minute within a game or within a week or within a month. Um, and And so... I would say it very much depends. Okay, so if it depends, then, then then what does that mean? That means in a situation, remember, most people thought he was definitively better before the trade. Like, we could conclude that. He's putting up these juicy numbers that reflect something that he's doing well out there. His top line number in box plus minus was better. Uh, I could double check. No, he did not play enough games without Nash. If he played enough games without Nash, we could even look at like his on-off difference in the games and other stats. We'll talk about that in some of the examples we're about to get to. But I think this takes us back to that tyranny of the quantifiable episode, which was one of the first episodes I did 
uh, on the podcast, and I still think one of the most important, because we look at this, we look at the available uh, information, and we say, oh, I'm looking at two players. One of them has this stat line that's way better, and his top line stats are better. The other one, maybe he's got a little bit more volume, but he's kind of, he might even be a chucker. You know, uh, everything else he does seems to be worse. His top line stats are all worse. Sure, he has some value on his team, but his efficiency is really low. I'm going to take, I'm going to take player A. And in this case, player A is a guy, you know, Amari um, pre-trade, but it's not really pre-trade. It's really Amari with Nash versus Amari without Nash. And these interaction effects between players are everywhere. So a a big thing for me in analysis is not just looking at the context of a team and saying, um, you know, what kind of role are you playing as, as a shooter or a slasher or a spacer or whatever it is. It's also thinking about who else is around and sort of what kind of role you're playing from a star perspective. Are you a super heavy lifter? Are you um, kind of someone who can vary your load? I think I kind of talk about this as load capacity in the video? Do you have flexibility in how you play? Or are you just going to go into the room and and take up all the oxygen in the room? Uh, I would suggest someone like Michael Jordan was like that. For good reason, obviously, right? Like effectiveness is part of this story, but some players do this and they're not effective, which is also really, really, really key. Uh, For me, this is like, I call this like Dewan Wagner theory, in my head, Dewan Wagner was a, a prospect who went to Memphis, and he just took a ton of shots, but he just wasn't that good at making them. Still would end up scoring like 25 or 30 a game, and so if you're into the points per game crowd, you, you really fall in love with this. But essentially what's happening is you have players playing a particular style with shooting the ball constantly, and it's not very effective. That may map to someone like Russell Westbrook today, where... When Westbrook, forget four years ago, just even in the heart of his career, like 15, 16, 17, those seasons, he was still able to create value, tremendous rim pressure, obviously, and then from there, score or playmake. But Westbrook plays in a style where when he's on the court, the primary way he adds value is to have the ball and do something with it. So he's eating up a huge amount of oxygen in the room. We'll we'll talk about him specifically in a second. I think the other thing I want to get to before I get to those examples is thinking about, you know, the philosophical question of, is it better to be the best number one? Is it better to be the best co-number one, um, number two, all the way down the line? And in the video, I say, you know, what best represents Durant as a scorer? Is it this time when he's the only star out on the court? Is it when he's in Golden State and he's surrounded by, you know, other high-level, uh, high-usage players? Or is it a combination of, of all of them? And of course, I think it's a combination, but I don't think it's an equal parts combination. I don't think you have to give weight to everything equally. I think what we tend to do, the trap we tend to fall into... Um, well, I should say there's two traps. The first trap is one I've discussed extensively, which is falling in love with the Lone Star stuff, because the Lone Star stuff tends to put up the juiciest numbers for a certain kind of player. And then we end up celebrating that kind of player and saying, hey, everyone has to demonstrate that they can perform this level of heavy lifting. 
I think the other trap for many of us is looking at good situations for guys, whether your best situation is to be a co-number one, to be a sidekick, to play with a sidekick. Um, maybe Michael Jordan's best situation was playing with a sidekick and he, he got one in Scottie Pippen, maybe having too many stars in the room, maybe an offense that was very egalitarian would not be as ideal. Um, we'd, of course, have to see something like that to really know it, which is the trap, right? Sometimes players just play in the same situation for three or four years during their prime. Uh, another guy in another situation doesn't change for three or four years, and we become very fixed and, and convinced that that's it. This player, he's, his, his efficiency is X. It's not going to change. His volume is Y. It's not going to change. His top-line stats um, are, are this. And what happens is you forget that if you just simply change situation, his value would change. So his plus-minus data might change. His efficiency might change. His volume might change. And this essentially affects not only all of his statistical profile and his statistical footprint, but how we think about and talk about the player and the narratives we write. We're, we're about 10 games into the season right now. I think DeMar DeRozan, I liked his fit in Chicago because I think Levine and DeRozan, I don't think either of them uh, off the top of my head have this like giant star capacity in terms of their load, but they're both a little behind that. And so what that means is they kind of help each other. They cover for each other in terms of some of their weaknesses. And they also complement each other spatially in terms of the way they use the floor. Levine uh, is rim and threes. He can play off ball. He's a great shooter. He's active and moves. And DeRozan loves the mid-range and he loves setting up in the elbows. And you can, you can feed him the basketball and the two of them don't really get in each other's way as much. I don't know if that's the recipe for great postseason success, but I think it can work pretty well in the regular season as a fit. And then what could happen is DeRozan's plus minus data all of a sudden when he was in Toronto or San Antonio playing that role um, with different players complimenting him. He always has a negative plus minus profile. And now in Chicago, it might be positive. We'll see how it holds for the rest of the year, but I wouldn't be surprised by that. And then you would, and then you, you know, you would scratch your head at that. You'd be like, "Well, did he just get better? Um, what happened? Was it was the plus minus data kind of wrong the whole time? Was it just noise that kept going against him? I don't think it's just noise. It's happened for most of his career. But I do think we have to to think about what it means. Another thing with DeRozan's plus minus is he's playing on good teams, so he's eating up innings in the regular season. Um, his backups or whatever's happening, like his team is successful when he's on the court. We can't forget that part of it. Anyway, I, I'm way out of bounds. Sometimes I need someone to keep me on track. Um, let, let's let's get to the examples. We did Amari and Nash briefly. Let's talk about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was basically able to always play next to a dwarf star. Now, how do we know that Scottie Pippen was a dwarf star? Um, that terminology is arbitrary. You know, it's, it's as fluid as you want it to be. I'm just making kind of categories up to um, simplify things to make it easier to see. But in other words, how do we know that Pippen, if Jordan wasn't in the lineup, how do we know that Pippen wouldn't have had a load of like 50 or 55 and increased his playmaking and increased his scoring? 
and you know it would have been like a 25 or 27 point per game score um we know because Pippen got to play without Jordan Pippen's load anytime he played without Michael seemed to be capped right around 40 and as I alluded to with Clay Thompson Pippen did get to uh, play with Horace Grant who was kind of the second in in command um, once Jordan retired 1994 but when Grant was out of the lineup, Grant played 12 games. And again, the cool thing is in 12 games, you can actually make really strong inferences about some of these stats. The effectiveness shooting might be variable in a 10-game sample, but the style, what guys do, they have the ball more, they play make more, they try to score more. A huge one is free throw indicators because they have the ball and they're trying to pressure the defense more with their own scoring. So you'll see changes in free throw indicators. When Horace Grant went out of the lineup, Pippen's load didn't really change. So we can infer from that, basically, that he was playing at his max capacity, that he was kind of maxed out, that you can't extract more from Pippen, or or more accurately, Pippen isn't going to be able to uh, shoulder a larger burden himself, or we would assume he would probably do it. It's not fixed, right? Maybe there's another gear he has somewhere that he didn't seem to hit in those 12 games. Maybe it comes out in the playoffs. Maybe it comes out against specific opponents. But essentially, what you have to do is you have to keep looking down the rabbit hole and say, well, what do we think about Horace Grant? Is Horace Grant a guy who's going to uh, demand a lot of touches? Okay, how do we do that? We take Pippen out of the lineup. We see what Grant does with other players and on and on and on and on. So, so you can see, to, to really model something like this, statistically, you are going to need some big boy math, um, or you, it's kind of an art. You're kind of looking at what you know about in basketball, and you could infer, to some degree, if you, if you have a really good eye, like, hey, when Kobe and Shaq are off the court, Rick Fox isn't taking over. But sometimes the total stats obfuscate what a player does, like... Uh, in Milwaukee, you have an interesting example. I talked about Chris Middleton on a podcast a couple of years ago. If you play with a Drew Holiday, Eric Bledsoe, you've got this giant star in Giannis. Maybe you have another guy taking up a little oxygen in the room that you don't realize. You play in a certain system. All of a sudden, you put Giannis on the bench. You put that other guy on the bench. Chris Middleton is the only guy out there. He's capable of kind of handling a huge amount of the offense. Now, this gets back to my idea of offensive number ones and offensive number twos and defensive number ones. Do you want Chris Middleton to play that role on a championship team? I don't think so, no, but that's about effectiveness. But if as a substitute for someone who can ramp up their volume and would look totally different, what would, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, Middle, I think Middleton was like a 29-point score, 29 points per 75 without Giannis. And the way Middleton scores, a lot of elbow, isolation, um, difficult shot making, it, his, his efficiency doesn't change too much without Giannis. The, the interaction effects, Giannis, in other words, is not necessarily helping or making Middleton. He's just taking away opportunities from Middleton. So back to Pippen and Jordan. Jordan seemed to also always be operating kind of, you know, his load was 50-ish. Um, in 1996, he played got five games without Pippen. He went from 50 to 53. When, when you see small changes like that, when huge guys are going in and out of the lineup, 
to me, it suggests, especially in the case of, of a, a heavy lifter like Michael, that they are already kind of close to maxing out. If you took Pippen off the team entirely, um, you know, we played a much smaller role in like 1989 or 1988. You may see higher heliocentric numbers like that. But for the most part, you're getting a specific snapshot of Michael Jordan's stats and value. And that's with a guy like Pippen or a tertiary like Grant in the background. Even Dennis Rodman, Dennis Rodman didn't uh, take up possessions to score or playmake necessarily. He has one of the most unique footprints ever. He took up possessions by grabbing extra rebounds, which gave everyone else more chances to increase their own involvement rates because they're just getting second cracks at it over and over again. Very, very unique kind of offensive player at that point in time. I actually think for that that second 3P team with the Bulls, Tony Kukoc would be the guy to look at. And because um, Jordan basically never missed any games, uh, we can only go back and look at like 1998 where Pippen misses half the season. And so Kukoc would be kind of playing the quote-unquote second banana role on offense next to Jordan. And his load, you know, what does his load do? It goes from like 32 with Pippen in the lineup to 36 without Pippen. So again, maybe not a guy who at that point in time um, could carry a huge load. He maybe could be someone you could qualify uh, in that dwarf star range that I use in the video. He was also to pl- also able to play uh, 13 games without Pippen. So he was there in 94 and 95 you know, either with Pippen, with uh, Grant, excuse me, in the game, or in 95, kind of, you know, without Pippen before Jordan, big opportunities to carry a lot of offense, and his load did not get up over 40 in those situations. So basically, this is the thought process I'm going through when I'm comparing numbers, when I'm comparing volume, when I'm even trying to look at interaction effects and say, like, where is someone more successful where are they less successful? Because sometimes just doing more, um, you know, Kukoc in his heavier lifting games or whatever has a lower box plus minus in my model because some of the other indicators aren't as effective, basically, um, including what happens with the team. Like, are you able to play this role on a good offense, uh, a below average offense, a terrible offense, things like that? Those those make a difference for me, and they'll also make a difference in a lot of these kinds of stats that we end up looking at that shape our opinions about players. I've mentioned LeBron before. From 2012 to 2014, LeBron played 46 games without Dwayne Wade, but he had Chris Bosh in the lineup. And in those games, his box plus minus actually went up. His offensive load went up the Heat offensive rating was plus seven. As a scorer, he was 31 points per 75 at 10% ahead of the league. So when you start to see these jumps in offensive load as well, then the first thing I think in my mind is like, okay, there was another guy on the court that was, there was some redundancy. There was some clash. Like they were distributing, they had to divvy up the pie, basically. That's the idea. I wish we could have better language for this. If you've got beautiful metaphors and analogies, uh, <laughs> let me know, because I, like, I feel like we can do better. So what happened when Chris Bosh went to the bench? That's analogous to, in the video, the Lone Star situation, where LeBron's out there by himself. No Bosh, no Wade. From 
2012 to 2014, oh boy, buckle up. Uh, LeBron plays almost 2,000 minutes without them, 1,780 minutes. And when he is the lone star out there, he is 35 points per 75. He is 61% true shooting. I think that's like 8% ahead of the league off the top of my head. And his offensive load is 57. So he's up near that 60 mark we talked about in the video. One more thing I should add is that loads have been kind of creeping up for individual players over the years as the game has become more um, uh, offensive centric as the as the space has made it a little friendlier for offensive players to play this kind of heliocentric archetype. And so in 2013, a load of 57 in my head, that may be the same as 61 or 64 today or something like that. And, and you know, 1985, a load of 50 is probably what we see as 60 today. Um, obviously, the 60 is doing more than the 50. It's still capturing that in the absolute sense. But just thinking in your mind of where it is in terms of like a percentile within the league or a rank, it would be very rare to hit 50 in the 80s. And today it's very rare to hit 60. Uh, has anyone hit 70, you ask? Why? Funny you should ask. Let's talk about Russell Westbrook. In 2015 and 2016, Westbrook gets to play almost 50 games without Kevin Durant. So that's before his 2017 season. I've, I've talked about this before, so I'll be uh, quick as to sort of not beat a dead horse. But you look at his stat line without Durant, 32 points per 75 plus 2% scoring efficiency in his true shooting. Uh, his offensive load is 67, up near 70. And he takes 11 free throw attempts a game. When Durant comes back, you go down to eight, sorry, not per game. Um, you go to eight free throw attempts, that's per 75. All these numbers are per 75. His scoring goes down to 26, so from 32 to 26. And his efficiency stays exactly the same. So he's losing 20% 20 of his load playing next to Durant. goes from 67 to 57. Still very high load. And again, with Westbrook, it's like one of those guys that if you put a third star on the court, would he still be up in the mid-50s? Is he ever going to be able to be on the court and play a different style? Well, what happened in 2020? In 2020, he plays with James Harden. And... James Harden, of course, himself is one of the highest load players we've ever seen. We'll talk about that in a second because we have plenty of instances of James Harden playing with, um, you know, Eric Gordon as the next highest usage offensive player or, or just no one, you know, Clint Capella and a bunch of shooters or things like that. So in 2020, Westbrook goes and plays with Harden and his offensive load is 63 when Harden's on the bench. Where does it go when Harden's in the game? Goes down to 43. That, ladies and gentlemen, is nearly a 50% reduction in Russell Westbrook's involvement. And ideally, if you saw that next to someone like that, you would say, boy, I hope he's able to just finish and provide a ton of value elsewhere. Um, his passer rating in my model wasn't that good. It was five, estimated at five in those minutes. His shot creation for others goes way down. And his scoring goes from 32 points per 75 
at 1% below league average. So he's 32 minus 1, down to 24 minus 4. And I've talked about this before uh, on a podcast, the idea of skill curves and what it means to change the situation so your volume goes down, but your efficiency doesn't automatically go up. And this would be a perfect situation because Westbrook's efficiency is largely determined by his own self-startage. And, and I'm, I'm not using the word isolation here. Uh, I don't think I used it ever in the video. I haven't mentioned it yet on the podcast because self-generated offense, especially for these on-ball guys, to me is really the right term because you can score or you could pass. So if all your playmaking comes from having the ball and all your scoring comes from having the ball, that's when it gets tricky to play next to another player like that and still provide value and effectiveness, which is why you see stuff like the scoring volume and efficiency go up when Harden goes to the bench. Okay, Harden is amazing because in 2019, when Chris Paul was on the bench, that's almost 2,000 minutes, his offensive load was 68. 68. The man averaged 40 points per 75 possessions on plus 6% true shooting. 40 points per 75 possessions. Very, very, very rare to see that in a split. And in that case, it was 1,700 minutes. So then, okay, you say, great. Um, Chris Paul comes back in the game. I mean, they've got this super machine. Chris Paul comes back in the game. What happens? Well, his offensive load drops down to 52. What happens to his scoring? goes from 40 to 31. So naturally, his efficiency goes down from 6 to plus 4.6%. By the way, the the uh, Rockets were better with Paul in those two years. They were plus 9.7 per 100 possessions with both of them on the court, and they were plus 7 when Paul went to the bench. So what about Paul? The flip side of this story. What happens when he's out there and Harden heads to the bench? Well, when he's out there alone, his load is 55. But again, it's very difficult for two players to coexist with one carrying a load of 55 and the other carrying a load of 68. It's basically impossible. That's the thing about the limited amount of uh, oxygen in the room or the limited amount of pie or whatever. So one of them, they either have to redistribute that amongst themselves. Uh, They have to redistribute that, I should say. And when they redistribute that, one person could end up with more. So when Harden gets back on the court and he's playing with Paul, let's use 2018 as an example. When he plays with Paul in a thousand minutes, his load goes from 62 to 49. So it's a significant drop-off, but he's still carrying a load of 49. That's still what we would think of as heliocentric next to Chris Paul. So Paul, who's an on-ball operator, he goes from 55 with Harden on the bench, playing heliocentric, kind of substituting 80% of what James Harden gives you. In those uh, 900 minutes without James Harden in 2018, Paul averaged 28 points per 75 on plus 6% efficiency, a better passer rating in my model than Harden, creating the same amount of offense, at least the estimated um, offense here. And so you're, you're, you're taking Harden, 
putting him on the bench with 90% of Harden. And then what happens when you put them together? Chris Paul's offensive load goes from 55 to 33. 60% reduction. 33. Uh, 40% reduction, excuse me. 60% um, of that uh, original load. And his scoring goes down to 17 points per 75. And again, his efficiency goes way down. It goes from plus 6% to plus 3%. And then in 2019, the exact same pattern repeats itself with Paul's numbers being a little lower. So from my vantage point, if I were to look at that, and this is what I did in real time as this uh, was unfolding and then as he went to Oklahoma City and things like that, I would look at Paul and say he's slight, he's aging and declining slightly. Like that 2018 season, definitely a top 10 player to me. He's in that conversation, still very similar to uh, some fantastic years he had uh, with the Clippers. I mean, his 2015 to 2017 run with the Clippers was great. And so you see that when he's out there by himself. But the end of the season numbers look less impressive. And in 2019, they looked even less impressive because he went from like a 28 plus six score without Harden to a 23 plus two score without Harden. So he's he's declining in that role. And that's more of an apples to apples comparison. If you then send him to Oklahoma City, where he gets to play that role more, you expect the numbers to be more similar to those Lone Star kind of stats. And that's what happened. And then <laughs> the narrative becomes, oh, he's had a resurgence. Where I don't think he had a resurgence. I think it was, of course, there all along. We just have to look for the right signals and understand that these interactions are are everywhere, basically. Okay, I could go all day with these. Um, I was planning on doing Shaq and Kobe. We'll have to put some of this in an article and, and a data dump at some point in the future because there's so many permutations and combinations of players to look at, both in terms of the play-by-play data in the modern era, but even old games. We've got possession data on basketball reference since 1984, and then before that, we can even look at what's happening um, in points per game. We can estimate you know per 36 stats and things like that. So let's finish with my favorite example. I think the best example of kind of illustrating the power of redistribution, illustrating what can happen when you stack guys on top of each other. And they're all kind of playing roles where they're capable of providing value without any of them saying, I've got to be the guy that does all the heavy lifting. It's a balanced approach. And it's a balanced approach replacing one player who historically did the heavy lifting. That team is the Chris Webber Sacramento Kings. In 2004, specifically. Now, I think Weber's peak year is probably 2001. Uh, his best year, 2000, 2002, 2001. Um, right in there, maybe 2000. And so, obviously, he's coming back after an injury. But the success of this team in 2004, after the 2003 season, is pretty remarkable. And what happened in 2004 is the Kings played... 59 games without Weber. They played most of the season without Weber, and then they got 23 regular season games and some playoff games with him, which is a nice little sample to look at stuff like this. In the 
59 games without Weber. Mike Bibby averages 20 and plus 7, and he carries a load of 38. Peja Stojakovic, without Weber, averages 25 plus 13, just an incredible shooting and scoring season. He has a load of 34. Vlade Divac, in 2004, with Weber out in those 59 games, has a load of 32. So you end up with a lot of guys. You're, you're looking at this sort of like multi-star system, but they're all dwarf stars, if you will, to continue the analogy. Divots ups his load by 22%, Peja by 22%, Bibby by 22%. Um, similar thing happens with Brad Miller. Then Weber comes back. And he's less effective. He's, he can't move quite as well, but he's still demanding the touches. He's still using up oxygen in the room. And it reminds me a little of Westbrook in LA. I'm not sure what else he could have done. You know, we're, we're critical of players like this sometimes who kind of break the balance that the team has or uh, they do a little too much and their efficiency struggles and they're taking opportunities away from teammates. But much like Westbrook, I'm not sure what Weber was going to do. Spot up from behind the line, um, sit in the corner. I, I don't know. Maybe at that point, just guys like Vladi and Brad Miller were better in that system that they had with those shooters and um, cutters and, and whatnot. And so what ends up happening is Weber comes back. Bibby's stats go down. His load drops 10%, as I said. Page's stats go down. Divac's stats go down. And the team goes from a plus 10 offense, playing at a 61 win pace, to a plus four offense, playing at a 43 win pace. In addition to this, all of the kind of more advanced stuff, like if I were to run uh, my box plus minus model on those games or something like augmented plus minus using the on-off and plus minus data, all these guys get worse. Weber, Peja, Divots, Christie, Brad Miller, they all look better existing in a system without Weber. And then Weber gets put back in the system and basically he takes up the other opportunities that the players are using. They get redistributed when he's not there. They get consolidated back to Weber when he's there. And the thing just doesn't work very well. And I think sometimes with wowie stats, with plus minus data, because it is noisy at the top level, like what happens with the scoreboard, what happens with the team, sometimes we end up feeling less trust in the numbers or it can feel like a black box. But one of my favorite things about access to this level of data and thinking about it this way is you can see what actually changes. You can see who carries a larger or smaller load. You can see what happens to someone's playmaking. You can see what happens to someone's shooting or finishing, their three-point percentage. Um, you know, Page has shot 44% on threes without Weber. He shot 40% on threes with him. In a 23-game sample, is that just possibly noise? Sure, but when you get larger samples, you can see stuff like volume and efficiency, and some guys self-generate that. And so when you take away their pull-up opportunities their three-point shooting percentage goes down next to a better player. Some guys are great spot-up or movement or finishers, 
And so back to Amari Stoudemire, when you put them back next to a playmaker, those go up. But at least this level of data lets us see what's happening. Free throw attempts are another one. A lot of guys self-generate free throw attempts by putting pressure on the basket, um, typically by penetrating. But sometimes, of course, it's like uh, elbow post-ups or things like that. And when you see guy com- guys come in and free throw attempts go way down and all these other indicators go way down, as we saw with the Rockets examples, um, that is yet another reminder and an indicator of what's actually happening beyond just like random noise in the in the scoreboard. It gives us a more granular perspective of fit, of interactivity, of redistributing possessions. I, I think that's it for today. I could go forever on this. So like I said, um, for Patreons, patreon.com slash thinking basketball, I am going to put together something at some point in the near future with all of these kinds of permutations and runs I've done uh, on these stats over the years, and perhaps some article as well that, that lays some of them out, because there are some great ones. Um, if, you, if you have suggestions or curiosities about players, kind of like the, think, think about what we did with Harden touching Westbrook, touching Durant, touching the Warriors, like all, all of the pieces of information we can pick up there that add texture and color. Um, if you can think of any other interesting ones, let me know. Otherwise, like I said, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That is the best way to support this podcast and all things I do. We are having our monthly Q&A coming up. That's uh, where we sit down and talk about goodness knows what in our Discord community. Uh, there's an historical database of stats. There's additional content and more. Um, they make everything possible. So a huge thanks to Patreons uh, for their continued support. Thanks to you for listening all the way to the end of this podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, that's it for me. Yeah. Oh, I almost forgot. I almost forgot. Um, wherever you are listening, I, I really hope you're loving this NBA season so far. And of course, I do hope you're having a great day. Mm-hmm.